Verbally Effective with Ina Esco is an interview-style podcast that intersects art, culture, politics, and entertainment with a Memphis focus. With producer Sanaa Marie. Each week, I'm joined by a featured guest with roots in Memphis. Verbally Effective delves into each guest's personal journey to uncover the incredible stories fueling their purpose the highs and lows of their pursuits, and how through their passion, they are moving the culture forward. Be sure to follow Verbally Effective and Ina Esco on Instagram. Also, download the Verbally Effective podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play Music. Don't forget to check out the website and submit to be a guest at verballyeffective.com. What's up, y'all? It's your girl, Izzy Moore, sofa singer and conscious hip-hop artist. And I'm here at the Verbally Effective Podcast, hanging out with the one and only, my girl, Ina Esco. This is I Make Mad Beats, CEO and founder of Unapologetic. I'm here with Ina Esco on the Verbally Effective Podcast. I'm Lita McCullough-Selesky, and I'm verbally effective because I embrace change and I wield the power of storytelling to help us see ourselves and others and others in ourselves. Lita McCullough-Selesky is an essayist and memoirist whose work has been featured in The Atlantic, The New York Times, O, The Oprah Magazine, The Washington Post, Ozzy, and The Manifestation. Her essay, The Man in the Picture, published in O, the Oprah Magazine, was selected as a notable essay in Best American Essays 2019. Her most recent essay, We Are Losing a Generation of Civil Rights Memories, was published by The Atlantic. An alumna of the 2016 community of writers at Squaw Valley Nonfiction and Screenwriting Workshops, she is the author of the forthcoming father-daughter memoir, the Kneeling Man. Lita is a Memphis native who graduated from Craigmont High School. She also received her BA in political science and French from Northwestern University and her JD from the George Washington University Law School. Verbally Effective, your double E, Ina Esco here. Thank you guys so much for listening and still rocking with me through this COVID-19. You know, you guys can download and subscribe and review the podcast on all platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, CastBox, every and any podcast platform you definitely can hear the verbally effective podcast today I have with me a wonderful young lady who has done so many wonderful things in the publishing world her name is Lita McCullough Seletsky she's an essayist and author she's been published in a plethora of notable publications thank you so much for joining me today Lita how are you doing I am doing well. How are you? I am wonderful, you know, maintaining through it, through COVID-19. I know that's just, you know, a big plot twist for all of us these days, right? It sure is. My goodness. <laughs> yes. We're going to get into all of that, how it's affected your world. But let's start at the beginning. Are you originally from Memphis? Well, I was actually born in Fairfax, Virginia. Wow. Uh, my mom was uh, born and raised in Memphis. My dad uh, is from Tibbs, Mississippi. and uh, But my parents were living in northern Virginia near D.C. when I was born. And uh, my uh, brother, who is two years younger than I am, but when I was three, they divorced. And so my mom took the kids back to her hometown and uh, moved in with her parents for a little while before we got our own place. And so... Um, from the age of three on, I lived in Memphis, you know, went through the Memphis City Schools, and wow. uh, so that is where my roots are, and they do go deep there. Okay, so you moved to Memphis at the age of three. So what part of Memphis were, were you spending most of your time in? What part of Memphis? 
North Memphis, the heart of North Memphis for sure. So when my mom uh, moved in with her parents, uh, that was in Douglas. Okay. And uh, so that was on Carpenter Street near Mount Olive. And uh, I spent a lot of time over there. My brother and I did, um, you know, when my mom was living there with us. And then even after we got our own place, which was also in North Memphis, uh, in Evergreen, We spent a lot of time in Douglas with my grandparents because my mom was working during the day. She was a newspaper reporter at the Commercial Appeal. Wow. And then, uh, yeah, later ended up, you know, going up and becoming an editor and was features editor. Now she's retired. But um, so, yeah, I um, still ended up spending a ton of time in Douglas because my uh, granddad would pick us up from school and take us to their house, uh, my grandma and granddad's house, while my mom was working. And so after school and during the summer, we were on Carpenter Street. But it's it's all very, lo- very localized North Memphis. Yes, and that's amazing what you mentioned about your, your mother. It looks like, you know, the writing is in your DNA. It is. It really is. You know, she is a wonderful writer and editor. She is my my number one person to bounce ideas off and just get her feedback. So yeah, I get that from her. And even my dad is a great writer as well, even though that wasn't his uh, profession, but I I feel like it does come through DNA uh, among other things. Yes. Wow. Interesting. Okay. So what high school did you attend in North Memphis? I uh, attended and graduated from Craigmont. So, uh, yeah, when we were, when I was uh, in sixth grade, we moved to Raleigh Bartlett, not too far from Craigmont, you know, walking distance. And so I ended up going to Craigmont from eighth grade through 12th grade. Awesome. And what were you involved in at Craigmont? I'm sorry? What were you involved in while attending Craigmont? Oh, so I... um Gosh, I was involved in a lot of things. I I loved writing. I loved theater, um, student government. Um, I also, because it was an international studies school, there mm-hmm. were tons of programs that had an international focus, and that was really formative for me. And so I got really into studying French language, which I went on in college to uh, major in. I majored in French and political science. Um, so I was always doing something. I did, I did knowledge bowl. I mean, I did like a lot of, uh, I mean, I was, I was definitely a big old nerd. So yeah, I was all about that. Uh, probably I did model you in. I remember. Wow. Wow. Okay. So when you graduated Craigmont Lita, what were your plans? My plan, uh, was to, moved to a big city I knew that you know I wanted to see the life of the city I just always considered myself an urban person um and so I ended up going to college uh at Northwestern University outside of Chicago in Evanston Illinois Mm. wow how was that I mean that was a you know a big change from Memphis to Illinois how was that it was a big culture shock I mean it was very um, it was different in many ways. You know, first of all, I'm away from home, living away from home for the first time, hundreds of miles away. Um, and the environment was just totally different. Um, the weather was completely different. Those Chicago winters. I remember my mom had bought me this huge down coat that went from like my neck down to my ankles <laughs> and it was triple fat goose I'll never forget that coat I actually kind of wish I had that coat now because I think I would like it but back then I just thought it was the ugliest thing I'd ever seen and I was too ugly to wear but um, then you know there is a level of cold where you don't even care what you look like and so you know those levels were reached and so I wore that coat it was like walking around in an igloo but um Anyway, so it, it was different. It was a time of self-discovery and independence and figuring out who I was. Yes, indeed. And you mentioned that you also majored in French. I mean, what was the attraction to, you know, take on that major as well? I really liked French. If I could have 
just done French and not added the political science on, I probably would have done it. But um, I remember conversations with my mom where she was asking me, you know, what are you going to do with a French degree? And I said, I don't know. Maybe I could be a translator or something. Mm -hmm. But anyway, the, the attraction to French was I loved the language. I loved the rhythm of the language, the sound of it, the, the um, culture that was attached to it, the literature. Um, I loved um, studying Francophone cultures outside of France, um, such as in parts of Africa, among others, it was just really, just really attractive to me. Yes, yes. I, I love the French language, although I didn't study it. I studied Spanish, but I do love the French language. Maybe I'll take that on eventually since we have a little time on our hands. <laughs> Maybe. Exactly. <laughs> I was telling my husband, it's time to pull out Rosetta Stone and use this time and let's pick up a language. <laughs> yes, since we have all of this time on our hands. Okay, Lita. So um, when you graduated, what was on your radar with this political sci and French degree? What was on your radar at that point? So I was looking at law school, and quite frankly, that was one of the reasons why I added on political science, because I thought, okay, that seems like one of the majors that can track you for law school. So, you know, I tacked that on and I do, I mean, I did enjoy studying political science and I do to this day enjoy political science and politics and all the things around that. But um, I was thinking law school, which was one of the things that, you know, since, the, since I was young, I always wanted to be a lawyer. You know, I wanted to be a writer, an actress, a lawyer, but it seemed like <laughs> In law school, I know, you kind of can marry some elements of all those things because you're writing, you know, you are, um, there's even a little razzle-dazzle if you're going to be up in court, you know, in a trial or a hearing. So I thought, okay, well, that's something I can do. I like public speaking. There's public speaking involved. So that's what I did. Wow. Wow. So, um, so you did get into law school. Is that correct? Did you go into that's law? That's right. So Okay. I did go into law. So I, um, after I graduated from college, I took a year off and decided to work in a law firm to figure out, you know, I mean, the idea of law school sounds nice, but would, do I, would I like a law firm environment? Mm -hmm. So I went and worked in a law firm in downtown Chicago in the law library as an assistant, and I did like it. I thought, okay, this is for me. So I ended up going to the George Washington University Law School in Washington, D.C. Mm, wow. So how much time did you spend there just, you know, from the start to actually, I guess, you know, transitioning into now you have a trial, now you have cases. You know, what did that work look like leading up to you actually, you know, gaining clients? and things of that nature, and even just being a woman in the law profession. Yeah, so um, in law school, you know, you it, it's where you get the opportunity to um, be an intern and, you know, an associate, a summer associate at law firms. So that's kind of, you know, you, you study hard, you try to you keep your grades as high as you can, and so you build a resume that will allow you to intern or, you know, become a similar associate at a law firm or, you know, government law office or, you know, some kind of legal office. So that's what I did. And so I was able to um, become a summer associate at a pretty large law firm in downtown D.C. after my, um, I think it was after my first year of law school, well, actually, after my first year of law school, I interned in the federal court, and then I think I did one other smaller job uh, that summer. And then after my second year of law school, I entered a summer associate program. And so that is what uh, that is one way that you can track into a uh, legal career. Mm -hmm. So I did that, um, and so I was invited back um, and eventually, after I graduated, that is where my job offer came from. So I went right from law school to this large law firm in the litigation department. But also in law school, you can also do legal clinics. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. and that will give you a flavor of what the practice of law is like. So, and I really enjoyed the clinics. I think that was probably my favorite part of law school. I did a consumer mediation clinic and I just loved the feeling of helping people. They would call in with these different consumer problems and we would try to help them find solutions. And so that was a really good feeling and I liked being in contact with people and being able to help them. And then I did an appellate clinic um, one year. And so uh, it wasn't a full year, but uh, I think it was a semester or so. And so I got to argue an appellate criminal case in the Court of Special Appeals in Maryland. And I really liked that. So, um, So from those clinics, I got the idea that I want to do litigation for sure. And I really just like the feeling of being able to help somebody with the training that I got. So I went into this uh, law firm that I'd gotten the offer from and did litigation. It was mostly a lot lot of legal research and writing, um, really good training. I got to handle some matters as well. Uh, But when you're a young associate at a firm like that, you know, they start you off kind of doing mostly research and writing and, um, and of course, you're, you're getting mentored and everything like that. But that is how I got my uh, practice started. Oh, wow. Now, as a woman <clears throat> in that particular profession, um, you know, you hear these stories about, you know, it being more challenging for women to kind of climb the ladder in the law profession. Did you feel that way, that you had additional challenges, or was it pretty straight and narrow? Was it, you know, a pretty clear journey with your law profession? Um, That's a good question. I mean, you never know kind of how your, your gender or your race are affecting decisions that are made. I mean, I never was in a situation where I felt like I was being you know, directly discriminated against. However, I mean, we live in America where, you know, we know what some attitudes are out there. And so, yeah. I mean, one thing about systemic racism is it can, it can kind of make you question your reality and make you wonder when something happens, you know, was, was my gender, you know, was, was the fact that I'm a woman a part of the decision that was made here, the way I was treated in this situation. And then I think also being a woman, I mean, there were certain rules that women had to go by. I don't know if it's like that anymore, but for example, in court, you know, I, you know, you were expected to wear a skirt, you know, with really? not pants. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You were expected to wear a skirt. Um, I think there was one time when, someone assumed that I was uh, like a secretary instead of an attorney <laughs> and so yeah mm-hmm. I mean that okay so that's that's a pretty straightforward case yeah. but um, yeah it's just one of those things that we deal with in, in anything that we do yeah. in the society wow wow so your time you know um, dealing with these cases and litigation you did a lot of research a lot of writing is that where you pretty much honed in your skills of writing and started venturing into becoming an essayist like how did that transition come about Lita so that was a really kind of you know, it was it was more of a sea change than a transition, you know, from going mm-hmm. from a, a legal career to a writing career. Yes. So writing was something that I liked to do. Mm-hmm. Growing up, you know, I went to, uh, to, in elementary school, I went to Springdale Magnet School. Mm-hmm. And so there were a ton of opportunities to write, and there were contests, you know, writing contests. And that's when I did a ton of creative writing and really developed a love for it. Mm-hmm. And then at Craigmont also, um, you know, lots of writing opportunities, and whenever there was a writing competition or something, I was there, I was in it, so I did a lot of creative writing before I went off to college and law school, and so in college, I really just dropped all of that. I, d- I didn't do any writing that was, you know, creative writing that I can think of. Um, I mean, even when I was studying French literature, I mean, I was reading. We weren't create, we weren't writing, we weren't creating literature, mm-hmm. and so writing, you know, writing essays 
uh, in the memoir, that's not something that I picked up again until I had been practicing law, gosh, for probably seven years. Wow. What made and you then, pick it back up? So it was, I really felt a call to do it. Mm-hmm. And it was really a mission-based decision because I felt like I needed to tell the story of my dad. Oh. And, um, and you know, and I needed to get behind it. And I felt like if I can talk to him and get his side of the story and kind of put it in context and just tell the story, then, you know, that's something that's worth picking up the pen again and trying to do. Wow. So it was really, you were inspired to tell your dad's story. How long did it take you to write it? It took many years, and it was not a straightforward process. It was, so in uh, 2010, at that point, I was living in Texas. I was living in Houston. I had met my husband in D.C., and uh, we got engaged, and he got a job offer in Houston, so I went with him. And uh, so then, you know, I started working for a law firm down there, took the Texas bar, passed that, you know, practicing at a firm there, and so I had my two kids. After I had my second son, I just thought, you know, I'm going to pause my career, my legal career, and I'm going to stay home with these kids. Mm -hmm. But also, I thought, there's something else that I need to do right now. I just felt this call. You know, I, I need to, I need to, I need to talk to my dad and find out what his story is. And I need to write that down. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did. And that's when I started, you know, started writing it. And um, so it all started with a phone call where I just asked him what his story was. And he told me, you know, there's a lot. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm going, let me send you some notes. And then you can read those and we can go from there. So he sent me 17 pages of typewritten notes. And I got those notes. And then I just kind of hit this block where I couldn't even read the notes. Because I I was too afraid to confront what might be in there. And so I basically had those notes. He had emailed them to me. And they just sat in my email for years, like five years. Wow. <laughs> so, I know. I like, I got her to tell the story and I got the notes and then it's like, okay, I'm not yet ready for this. And so, I mean, there's more to it than, you know, than that, that, that made it take five years because, mm-hmm. um, a few months after that, my husband got a job offer to work overseas in Kazakhstan. So we all ended up picking up and moving internationally and you know to central asia Mm. and so we were living in kazakhstan for two years and i just got completely distracted like i allowed myself to get completely distracted and i thought okay well i don't really have time to do this other project right now because i've got to get the family acclimated i got to learn some russian you know so i can get some groceries and interact with people (laughs) there's just more you know to do right now but when i get time then i will read these notes and kind of get into the story and of course that time did not come then after a couple years in Kazakhstan my husband took a job in uh, Lagos Nigeria so then we moved to Nigeria from Central Asia and so another big international move another big uh, you know culture shock complete change you know 180 and so again I thought okay well you know we've got to adjust to this new place. This is our second international move. We did that. You know, we did a lot of travel. I learned how to play tennis. I just found <laughs> other things to do. Right, living and life. Living life. And looking back, you know, I I don't know that I would be writing today except that there was a huge plot twist that is somewhat similar to the plot twist that the whole world is going through now. So this was in um, 2014. Um, that summer, the Ebola virus um, became an epidemic in West Africa. Yeah. And then later, you remember it came to the United States as well. 
And so, but in West Africa, I mean, there, it affected a lot of people and it kills a lot of people and sickened a lot of people. And so when that happened, we were based in Lagos where they had had, um, patient zero in Nigeria who had come to Lagos through this airport that we used to travel in and out of all the time. And so when that happened, we were actually on vacation in the United States. We had bought a vacation house in the Lake Tahoe area. And so, but my husband was kind of, you know, he had come on vacation and then he went back to Lagos to work. But when, when the virus started to hit the news and the, the news hit that it was actually in Lagos where we were living, um, I, and then I saw also that because of Ebola, they had canceled school. They had postponed it for months. So it wasn't going to start in August like it was scheduled to. Mm. I decided... I'm just going to keep the kids here in the States so that we can figure out what's going on and what, what, what's this going to look like. So we just stayed in a vacation house. It was kind of an involuntary move, an involuntary repatriation to the United States. So, you know, we were in this house. We had just gotten it. We didn't have much, you know, I mean, we bought it furnished, but we just had our suitcases. So I just, just set us up in there and enrolled them in this school that was down the street from the vacation house. And we ended up spending four years there. But during that time, and yeah, and so my husband, meanwhile, was, you know, working in Lagos for an additional year. And then he ended up uh, getting uh, sent to uh, California to work and he was doing all this travel. But I'm in Tahoe with the kids Mm. starting over again, you know, getting them settled there. But that is when... I really got serious about writing and I had to sit with this story, you know, cause I'm there, my husband's not there. And then I was able to really hear this call again to write the story. And so I enrolled in a creative writing class and that is when I entered the writing community, mm. um, you know, in Tahoe and then, you know, California. And, uh, I ended up going to a really, um, a workshop that has had a huge influence on me, the community of writers at Squaw Valley. And that's when the writing really took off. And so I started seriously writing the book. I read the notes, I read the 17 pages and started seriously writing the book in 2015. I have a draft of the manuscript now, five years later. So the short answer is five years, but a lot (laughs) happened in between. Sure, a lot happened within those five years. Oh my gosh, like you guys were moving from one part of the world to the other and, you know, was impacted by Ebola at the same time. Oh my (laughs) girl, you went through a lot. Now you mentioned, um, that you guys were in Lake Tahoe and your husband had to go back to Lagos. Now, you know, he had to go back to Lagos while Ebola was going on, like they were trying to figure it out. Um, That had to be scary, you know, on your end, worried about your husband. It was really scary. It was really scary. And so, you know, that was one of the big challenges was just, the emotional and psychological challenge of dealing with that mm-hmm. and you know he's all the way over there I actually ended up ordering these antiviral masks I ordered a lot of masks to the point where I actually still have some of the masks that I had originally ordered for Ebola oh, so wow. I'm able to use those which is a blessing but um yes. it was scary and you know he he would tell me about how, you know, uh, coming in and out of this uh, compound where our house was in Lagos, you know, they wouldn't have the, the thermometers that they point at your head and, you know, they're checking everybody's temperature. And mm. so it definitely was a lot. Wow. <clears throat> Girl, that that is something else right there. Now, Lita, why did you want to tell your dad's story? Why was it on your heart to tell his story? Specifically, I just knew that it was important. Well, it was personally important to me and to the family because I did not know the story behind why he was in this famous photo of um, Dr. King's assassination. 
Mm. So I knew from an early age that he was in this picture that was taken of uh, the balcony of the Lorraine Motel right after Dr. King had been shot. My dad is kneeling over Dr. King, holding a um, towel to his wound to try to you know, administer first aid. And then there are several people standing over them and they're pointing at where the shot came from. So, you know, that's one of those pictures that is iconic. You know, you see mm -hmm. that picture everywhere. And so I grew up seeing that picture, but then knowing that that is my father in that picture. And, I, but I never knew much about why he was in it, except that, you know, he was a police officer. And so, you know, that was the story, but, you know, kids can kind of pick up on energy around topics and what's said and what's unsaid. And so I always had this sense that there's something here that we're not talking about and we're not maybe supposed to talk about. And so, you know, we never did. And so it was this big void. And then, uh, you know, of course, my parents were divorced. I would see my dad once or twice a year because he was working overseas for his job and I ended up learning when I was, gosh, I want to say 11 or so, that actually he was a CIA operative at the time. Oh, wow. That's why I was only seeing him once or twice a year. He was overseas traveling, you know, doing government work. Mm. And so that's another area of secrecy that added to the mystery of, you know, who is this person? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you put all that together with the fact that my parents had divorced and it was an ugly divorce. I mean, I remember, you know, that even as a child, I knew enough to know, you know, my mom never said anything bad about him, but, you know, you just pick up on the fact that, mm -hmm. you know, they're not getting along. And so I just didn't know how to feel about him. And so I just thought, well, okay, you know, I'm just going to go on with my life, which I did. I stayed busy, you know, I you know got my degrees and went on. And so I thought, okay, well, I don't have to deal with any of this stuff, but that's not really the way it works. Like if you have something like that in your background, then many times it's going to, it's going to be lurking there and it's going to pop up and it's going to, you know, or chase you down if you're trying to run from it. Mm -hmm. And so that's really what had happened is that I was running from it, you know, and all those moves and all those situations that seem like, Oh, you know, why is this happening to me? Or gosh, you know, I'm doing a lot of big moves, but maybe in a way I was kind of running from that. Mm. And so, you know, and especially having children, yes. I thought, you know, what am I going to be able to tell them about their grandfather? I want to be able to tell them what the truth is. I don't want them to feel this sense of secrecy. And so I decided, you know, this, I've got to address it. I just felt this call and this mission to talk to him. And then not to mention the fact that this is part of history. And my dad really has never talked publicly about his personal experience beyond, I think he had to, well, I know he had to testify before Congress in uh, the late 70s. But other than that, he hasn't talked much about what he experienced. So there's this puzzle piece from history that is missing. And I felt a responsibility to fill that in as well. Oh, wow, Lita. Was it very therapeutic for you writing through this? It was. I mean, it was healing. I feel like it, it created the condition for healing because, you know, on one hand, I felt like, you know, I got to know him better hearing his story and, you know, just really getting to know him. Because if you feel like there's this big um, kind of unknown with someone, it's hard to really feel like you know them well. And so by filling in that unknown and, and getting, you know, the story behind what happened, then I knew him. I felt like I knew him. So uh, we became closer. And then I was able to put a name to some of the sorrow, I guess, or some of the, the sadness that I'd had that I'd kind of carried inside, but never really identified before I was able to really get down into some of that and, and figure out where that was coming from as well. 
Oh, wow. Amazing. Lita. Wow. This is deep. <laughs> this is very deep. <laughs> wow. I'm glad. Deep. I'm glad you were able to, you know, pour your heart out in, in your writing with this and actually get to know your father again, you know, at that point. And, you know, other than this piece of writing that you did with your father, I know you have been, um, have submitted works and been published in many notable publications. Um, can you tell me about some of those writings uh, and, and how you've been able to, you know, just get your pieces in these big publications? Yes. Um, so that uh, has been a really uh, rewarding part of writing is, you know, being able to get these platforms to share the story and different angles of it, different facets and how it may relate to other things that are happening. And so the way that I was able to do it was really step by step. You know, I didn't just come out of the box and, you know, bam, you're in the New York Times. Like, no, <laughs> it didn't work that way at all. <laughs> right. And so it started with um, this uh, creative nonfiction class that I took in uh the Lake Tahoe area in Incline Village at Sierra Nevada College with a wonderful writer and a really dear friend, Gail Brandeis. So I took that class and learned some craft uh, things about writing and, and got a chance to practice and do exercises. And uh, I came out of that class with some pieces that I was able to expand on and get published. And so my first piece was for an online publication called The Manifestation. And it had nothing to do with my dad, you know. I think I might have mentioned Memphis in it, but um, it really had to do with Bob Dylan, which it was just kind of a fun piece, but mm -hmm. <laughs> it was about my husband and how he was a huge Bob Dylan fan. And when I first heard Bob Dylan, I thought it was the worst thing I'd ever heard and how <laughs> you know eventually I came to love Bob Dylan and mm -hmm. what that was like and and what that meant for our relationship and you know kind of what that says about you know human relationships and and how we uh, can grow closer through things that might divide us at one point so um oh no you know what no, right. that's, that's wrong. I'm sorry. That was my second piece I published on Ozzy. The first piece was about the Ebola thing. It was, um, okay. it was called The Audacity of Hopelessness. And it was about the Ebola experience in uh, Lagos and how I had initially been pessimistic about how the Ebola epidemic was going to turn out. But in fact, they did a fantastic job in Nigeria. Mm -hmm. um, handling this outbreak. That was my first piece. Then my second piece was Bob Dylan. So I went from The Manifestation, um, an online publication, um, and I don't think that was a paid piece. I think I just, you know, published that for the love of, you know, publishing, and it's a wonderful um, publication for sure. Mm -hmm. Then the Aussie piece, the Bob Dylan piece, that was my first paid publication. So I thought, okay, now look at this. <laughs> they paid me to write this yes. and it was really fun. So I want to do this again. And then um, after that, I uh, sent in a, it was a, a short, it was a flash essay, um, a, a humorous essay about puberty that I had written in this creative nonfiction class. Wow! And so I saw that there was a, a call for flash uh, humor essays for uh, an anthology called Flash Nonfiction Funny. So I submitted the essay and they took it. And so they published it in this book mm. that came out um, from Woodhall Press. The editors were um, Tom Hazuka and Dempsey Moore. And so that came out in 2018. And so then I thought, oh my gosh, now I'm in a book. What in the world? <laughs> you know? And so step by step, it kind of went from there. And then from there, I, um, well, actually, so this, this next one came on the, um, the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's assassination. And so this was my first piece where I talked directly about my dad and, you know, how he was on the scene and a little bit about that background story. Mm -hmm. And that one landed in the Washington Post. 
Um, so that yeah. was, you know, that was a, a really, uh, it was a big honor to be able to do that. And then after that, um, the next month, actually, I had a big feature story that landed in Oprah Magazine. Mm. Um, now, that one was my biggest piece that I published. I mean, it was somewhere around 3,000 words. Mm. And there were photographs. And I worked with Oprah Magazine for many months with great editors and um, got that done. And so that one also just felt like uh, a milestone for sure. And that is that piece was really um, kind of, the the little seed for the book that I've done. I mean, that's kind of the, you know, the the story in a nutshell. Oh, and so that published in 2018. So, you know, Oprah Magazine, yes, I was <laughs> definitely over the moon. I know. Um, and then I got a New York Times piece after that. I mean, I think, you know, once you start to build your resume, you know, you, mm-hmm. you build up to bigger things or not bigger but you know you just build up to more things and so um I did the New York Times after that I had a piece that appeared there um an uh, editorial piece and then most recently in the Atlantic uh back on May 3rd I had a piece on their website that uh had to do with um the coronavirus and how it's disproportionately impacting the black community and what that means for us um, to lose so many people, particularly our elders, mm-hmm. who have these stories. And then I tied that to my um, talking to my dad about his story and getting that down. So, um, yeah, I'm just going to try to keep this going. Yes, you should. You have been busy, Lita. You have been very busy. Um, I applaud you for the work that you've been doing. Um, And just speaking about this coronavirus, I mean, I know probably what's going on now is probably so different from what you did experience with the whole Ebola situation um you know in your uh, in a few a, a few years back so you know when you compare the two what are the most striking differences um that stand out to you since you've experienced both what are the the major i guess top 3 differences with these two pandemics in your opinion gosh um yeah the, i would say the the main difference to me, number one, is that this coronavirus is at least probably a 100-year event, as far as we can tell. There has been nothing like it. The Ebola virus, um, while serious and horrible, has not or did not, um, you know, take as many lives or sicken as many people. And so that's number one, huge difference. Number two, I would say the pandemic nature of this coronavirus has affected every nation. Um, And I, and I think, you know, the whole world is going through, you know, similar things in terms of, you know, having to try to distance, having to try to wear masks and do all these things, you know, a lot of, activities that we used to do routinely have ended or changed a lot. And so that was something that was not the case with uh, Ebola. And the third one, gosh, big differences. I would say that, um, and, and this really flows from one and two is the economic impact and fallout because this coronavirus has really impacted the markets like no illness that we've seen. And so there's so many questions about what the world is going to look like in a, you know, hopefully a post coronavirus world at some point, you know, uh, I would say, you know, perhaps there there will have to be a new normal. Things will not look the same. You know, this is something that will will mark us 
as a world. Definitely as a world. Do you think that you'll continue to put out pieces um, as we go through this coronavirus? Because it, it seems like we can't see the ending with this right now. Exactly, exactly. And then there's so many issues that are coming up. This is something like we've never seen before. And, you know, I feel like I am a kind of a mission-based writer. You know, I, I write when I feel like I have something to say, either that it has to come out. And so, you know, I never know what that's going to be. So I just, mm-hmm. you know, I stay engaged and then something will hit me and I'll say, oh gosh, I really have to write about that. Or I'll see connections in different issues. And, and of course, coronavirus is touching pretty much every aspect of our lives. And so, um, yeah, I think I will continue to write about it. And, you know, I get these little ideas every day and I make a note in my phone um, about them. And, you know, some of them, you know, I sit down and I start writing and they don't really go anywhere and then some of them do. So, um, yeah, I think that that is my process and I think it will continue as this goes on. Wow. Do you have like a, a writing book that you sit and r- write all your ideas in, like one exclusive book that you write in, or is it like in different places? Because I know some writers like maybe have a, you know, something like a book that they go into, or do you have it like in different areas? So I I tend to stick with a book, a writing journal. So I've got... Um, have two journals so one of them I've almost filled up but I have a few little pages at the end so I've actually gone back and started working in those and then I have another journal and they're different colors the first one is black and then the second one is orange bright orange which is one of my favorite colors um and so I do write in that but then I also find myself you know if I'm well, I don't really, you know, I'm not going anywhere now. I'm pretty much sheltering in place. But previously when I was out, I would tend to write on my phone. If okay. I got an idea or, you know, a sentence came to me or something, I would write on my phone. So I do also have digital notes, but I tend to like to write in my journal. And also I tend to like to write uh, longhand mm. because there's something about that connection between the hand and the brain. I just feel like when your hand is flowing across the page, the idea is the ideas are flowing. And so I feel more creative when I'm writing longhand personally. Mm-hmm. And then I'll go back and type it. Do you have any advice for people that want to write but just haven't, you know, put anything down, put haven't put any thoughts down on paper yet Uh, do you have any advice to encourage people to get it out yes I do because I think it's so important that people tell their stories stories are powerful and so I do want to encourage everyone to tell your story it is important and if you feel this call to tell it there's only one way to do it and that is to do it so if you haven't written anything down write it down and my goodness you know we're sheltering in place for the most part we're distancing so uh if you have an opportunity just write down you you don't have to write a whole book i mean you know nobody's i don't want to say nobody but a book is written one sentence at a time so maybe write one sentence and then see if you feel like writing another one and then write the next one and the next one and uh if you just do that and it doesn't really take much. You could do a little a day if you want. You know, you could write for five minutes a day or you could write every other day, whatever works. But just write one sentence and then write the next one and then the next one. And if if it doesn't go anywhere, then maybe you could start with another line of thinking, but keep what you wrote before because you never know. I mean, there's definitely pieces that I come back to after a long time. But to me, that is a non-intimidating and... um realistic way to start and you know how they say the way to eat an elephant is one bite at a time the way to write anything is one sentence at a time yeah and just listening to your story I, I I know that you had picked up that creative writing class and it seemed to push you along do you recommend getting involved in a creative writing class as well I think that it's a great idea I think um you know, to be with a community of writers, whatever that looks like, um, is is a hugely important thing. Um, and then to learn um, about the craft of writing, 
uh, is great, and to also be in conversation with other writers, reading their work, and having other people read your work, and getting constructive feedback, you know, at a certain point, when, when you are ready, you know, when the work is ready to be seen and you're comfortable. I think those are great things and things that have helped me so much. So I would definitely encourage um, people, you know, you don't need to labor in solitude. I think it's good to be in uh, a community. So whether it's a class, um, a conference, it could be, you know, a Zoom session. It's a great thing. It's yes. a great thing to do. Now, Lita, do you miss law? Are you are you still even involved in law anymore at all? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, sometimes I do. I, you know, I have my law licenses, although I, um, you know, to keep up your licenses, you have to do continuing legal education, and it ends up being a lot, you know, like a lot of hours. And so I ended up going inactive in Texas so that I don't have to do the continuing legal education, but I still have my license. I can reactivate it if I'm going to be practicing again. So, I mean, I figured, you know, I did all that work. Let me just hang on to the license, but I'm not going to be practicing anytime soon, but I can foresee. So, uh, yeah, deactivated that. Um, And then the same with Virginia, which is my first bar exam. I am still actively licensed in Washington, D.C. I kept that one going Mm -hmm. just in case, you know, you never know. But, um, I mean, I do miss it sometimes, but right now I feel like life has taken me in a different direction. And what I realized was, you know, a lot of the things that I liked about law practice and, you know, litigation in particular, I am able to do as a writer because I really like the the written word. I like uh, expressing myself on the page. And um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if I would... Uh, go back to it but yeah I liked it and I wouldn't be averse to it but I feel like <laughs> now I'm, I'm in a, going in a different direction I understand I understand um, our journey you know it just takes us in different directions and you've been all over the world I remember um, you know you you I follow you on Twitter we follow each other on Twitter and I remember you had tweeted um, a shot glass when you were in Russia and we were talking about that conversation and I was like oh it's amazing that she's been to Russia before and now listening to your story I see how you know all of your travels have come about um do you miss traveling internationally I know we can't we're, we're pretty much confined to our living spaces right now but do you miss traveling internationally and is there any place that you haven't been yet that you would like to go Yes, I miss it so much. I was thinking about this yesterday, <laughs> like, oh, I just want to go somewhere, you know, and uh, I really miss that part of, of, you know, living internationally, traveling internationally in different cultures and countries, places that I haven't been or a place that I haven't been that I want to go. I would love to go to, um, I've never been to the Middle East. You know, mm-hmm. any part of it. And I would love to travel through the Middle East. That's something I really want to uh, do. Um, I mean, there's so many places I haven't been that I would love to go. Um, I would love to go to Morocco. Yeah. Um, I would love to go to Zanzibar. I've been mm-hmm. to Tanzania, but we didn't, you know, I didn't go to Zanzibar. I would love to do that. There, There's a whole world out there, and I want to see, like, all of it. <laughs> well, I most know. of it. <laughs> Me too. Me too. Maybe. Maybe in 2022. Look, maybe yeah. we can get back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Wow. Well, you know what? Another thing that you and I both share in common is that we are boy moms. You are the mother of three boys. Tell us about your kids and, you know, how is it being a boy mom? I love being a boy mom. Uh, I love my guys. They are characters, and it's so amazing to watch them grow and develop into these little people with their mm-hmm. personalities that are so unique. And I, you know, I feel like I do the same things with them. I raise them the same way, you know, and it's the same home environment and they're so different and it's amazing to me. So I have a 12 year old, uh, who will be 13 at the end of the year. And then I have a 10 year old. He just turned 10. So the 12 year old is in sixth grade. The 10 year old is in fourth grade. Then I have a toddler 
who is two, he's two and a half, mm. and he's a little wild man. <laughs> and in fact, I I hear that he has awakened, although he seems, it seems like they got him calm. I heard a little noise, and now it's, it's quiet. But uh, yeah, he he is he's something else, and he definitely keeps us on our toes. But it's just so much fun watching him develop and watch his older watching his older brothers, you know dote on him and show yeah. him you know how to do different things and you know reading books with him and things yeah wow um you know with the impact of COVID-19 how did you know wh- what were some of the things that you noticed how it affected your children when it all came about it was scary for them and I really didn't want them to be scared I didn't want them to have all this anxiety about it and I you know as I was saying earlier, kids can pick up on energy around things and, mm-hmm. you know, what is what is unsaid. And so I really tried to be careful. However, there was such a big um, change, and it seemed so sudden to them with how school all of a sudden went to, uh, you know, Zoom and uh, mm-hmm. Seesaw, you know, and all these different platforms. And so one day, suddenly, they weren't going to school anymore. And I remember when I told uh, my oldest, that, uh, you know, they weren't going to be going to school in person because of, you know, this coronavirus, which, I mean, they kind of knew what, what that was as it was unfolding. He was not happy about that. He, he mm-hmm. was upset. And so, you know, it's a big disruption. Yeah. And, um, you know, we all like and need our routines, and kids certainly do. And so it was a big disruption to the, the routines. And so we just had to create new routines and you know we're we're adapting and they're very resilient and I'm really proud of how they're handling things yes yes because it's definitely a new normal in my house with the boys especially my oldest he'll be 15 in July and you know that disruption came down hard because it was like oh yay no school but then it was like really no school and he can't see his friends and you know that's when it really hammered down like oh this is for real so um exactly yeah definitely it's a big change for them um with my youngest you know he's pretty much going with the flow but the oldest I can definitely tell that it has kind of traumatized him in a major way so, you know, I hope Definitely. things can get back to normal soon, hopefully. <laughs> I hope so, too. I, I really do. And, I, you know, I noticed the same pattern in my household. Like the, the middle one, you know, the fourth grader, he just kind of took it in stride. But I think it, it was harder for the older one. Yes. Um, yes. So, yeah, I hope we get through this. Yes, I hope so. Well, Lita, I have definitely enjoyed listening to your journey on Verbally Effective today. Um, I knew that your story was going to be amazing. Just, you know, me following you on Twitter. I'm like, yes, I got to get her on the podcast. (laughs) And I'm so (laughs) glad I did and was able to connect with you. And, um, I would love for you to share with the verbally effective audience, you know, anything that you have, you know, that you're working on that's coming up and how people can um, find out more about Lita McCullough-Selesky. Yes, absolutely. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. I've really enjoyed this. So thank you. Um, right now, I, um, as I mentioned, I have a book. It's called The Kneeling Man. And so I have a, a draft of that book. I have a draft of the manuscript. And I have a publisher, though we are um, still working through the contract. So there will be more to come on that. So please stay tuned. Um, and I will be updating my website. People can um, uh, visit uh, com, which is L-E-T-A-S-E-L-E-T-Z-K-Y <laughs> that's a lot of letters <laughs> .com and uh, they can uh, read uh, the the pieces that I've published and then I will be updating that with uh, what I'm doing and then please follow me on Twitter I love Twitter yes, so I her. am yes at La Selecki which is L-A S-E-L-E-T-Z-K-Y. And then I am also on Instagram 
at uh, it's also La Seletsky, but it's L A underscore S E L E T Z K Y. Um, and you can follow me on Facebook too. So all those places, I would love to connect with uh, with the listeners. And uh, please do get in touch with me. Yes, yes, I'm sure that the audience will connect with you, Lita. I have thoroughly enjoyed you today, just listening to your journey um, from when you were over there at Craigmont to going to law school, then you, you know, indulged in your father's story, and now we're about to see that come to fruition in your international travels. Lady, you are amazing, and thank you so much for joining me on the Verbally Effective Podcast today. Oh, you're welcome, and thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this. Of course, you're welcome.